This podcast is for you if you want to learn about the wonderful and wacky world of the English language and the people who speak it. If you want to learn English, speak English, and understand different speakers of English, then you're in the right place and you're going to love our podcast episode today. Welcome to English World with Chris Americos. We are a team of language lovers, expert teachers, and native speakers who are on a mission to help people around the world speak English and show the world their true value. We correct mistakes, practice pronunciation, and explore grammar rules while drinking coffee and having fun. So get comfortable, relax, grab a pen and paper, and welcome to the show. Today's episode is brought to you by English Every Day, an unlimited speaking practice program where you can join live speaking practice lessons with professional native teachers five times every day. There are a lot of courses on the internet and a lot of useful videos too, but the one thing that is missing for most English learners is practice. And if you need speaking practice, then English Every Day is for you. So click the link in the description or go to chrisamericoast.com to learn more today. So today we have Hugh Deller with us, and Hugh Deller is a published textbook author, among other things, and he's very well known in the English learning and English teaching, even more so, uh, communities. And I mean, Hugh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you know yeah. your journey thus thus far to this point, and and you know what you're into now. Okay, um, so I've been teaching English as a foreign language for 30 years now, um, actually 30 years this month. So uh, I started in back in 1993. Wow. And I'm still teaching. Um, I teach online quite a lot these days. Um, I did 20 years working at University of Westminster in London, teaching all kinds of different levels, teaching on the MAT SOL, teaching Cambridge exams, um, yeah, teaching academic English, academic literacy, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, started writing course books back in 2000. And so I've been involved in course book production ever since then, really. We're currently on the, the third edition of our outcome series with National Geographic Learning. And along with my, my business partner, Andrew Walkley, um, we've written a methodology book called Teaching Lexically. And we run a kind of small company, small website training firm called Lexical Lab, um, where we kind of blog about language and about teaching. And I do a lot of YouTube video stuff. Um, I have quite a busy Instagram channel. These days, I'm sort of more or less fully self-employed, um, kind of a variety of, of income streams from coursebook writing and running summer schools in London for teachers and teaching online and doing all kinds of other bits and pieces. But yeah, that's basically what I do these awesome. days. Yeah, and we'll make sure to put all the links so you can find Hugh. Thank you. Description, you know, YouTube, website, Lexical Lab. That's yeah that's your main that's, that's, your awesome. brand, that's your company yeah that's right yeah okay. cool so you know i i have a question for you and it's kind of a deep question and so feel free to give a surface level answer or a deeper answer or whatever comes to mind but okay you know i i thought that this would be a good place to start our discussion how does language alter our reality it obviously massively alters our reality because I think, in a sense, we are all shaped through 
many different kinds of events that happen to us as part of our kind of a culturalization process and some of those things are to do with just the systems and the processes which we experience as part of our upbringing whether that's through the school system or you know the the, the world of work or, or those kinds of things um some of it's to do with the way we're treated by the people around us um but a lot of all of those things are mediated through language and I think the language that we grow up around, the language that people we're close to use, the language that's widespread in society obviously impacts us. And the language that is normalized around us obviously impacts us and it can make it easier or harder for us to think about things in particular kinds of ways. And I think, if you're living in a country where the official use of language is quite regulated and quite, I don't know, um, oriented towards trying to encourage you to think in certain kinds of ways, shall we say, then that also obviously impacts on the way in which you feel it's possible for you to express yourself and think and and to kind of be in the world i think so i think massively massively so does it follow then that english speakers maybe have a different reality than the speakers um, is that how it is and, and when you access english that you're gaining access to a new reality or is it not that it's it's not that deep i, I don't think it works like that it's, it's funny you should mention it because yesterday in one of my classes we were talking about the sapir wharf hypothesis um, you know, this idea that if you don't have words for particular things in your language, it makes it harder or easier for you to think about things in certain ways. And I think generally that's been discredited, that that kind of worldview, that idea that, you know, if you don't have 42 different words for snow, you'll never appreciate snow like Arctic peoples or whatever. Um, I, I don't think it works like that. And I think it would be a mistake to assume that everyone who speaks English at whatever level has a similar worldview or a similar experience. Yeah, if only, if only that were the case. Um, it's obviously not the case. And, you know, language is one of the many things that divides us within our own mother tongue. Um, because, you know, I mean, in the States, as well as here in the UK, language is part of the culture war it's part of the way in which social discourse has been degraded and that we've been encouraged to kind of other people and to, to demonize people um and i i know from my own experience that lots of people who speak english at very high levels don't really change their worldviews at all from from the worldviews they grew up with in their own first languages. And so I, I think what it can do is it can give you access to, same as learning any language, it can give you access to ideas and thoughts and worlds and experiences that maybe you wouldn't otherwise be able to have. What you then do with those worlds or experiences or ideas is obviously totally up to you and right. different people will do different things with them awesome answer I, I absolutely agree awesome so 
thinking about English, you know, a, a lot of people are studying English. A lot of people who are listening are either studying or teaching English probably. And yeah. you know, there's this discussion always about how much time does English have left? How much longer does English have as the, the lingua franca? What do you think? It's a very, very difficult question to answer. And yeah. I, I generally try and avoid making big predictions because <laughs> it's an easy way to end up with kind of egg on your face you know <laughs> um the answer is obviously tied up with all sorts of geopolitical machinations that are way beyond either of our control and that that you know are yet to play out in a way um i think it's still got a long way to go um i think there have been certain things that have impacted the spread of English in a negative way so I mean I think here in the UK things like Brexit has obviously damaged the status of English within the European Union um, it's obviously made it slightly less of an attractive option or an attractive language and it's probably boosted I guess both both the other sort of more established languages within the European within the European Union, but it's also boosted just just multilingualism and plurilingualism generally. I guess in terms of challenges to English, well, you've already got things like Spanish, um, which are, you know, global languages. Um, French, Arabic are also sort of very widespread languages. Um, in terms of something actually overtaking English as a global lingua franca, the general argument would be that that would be Chinese at some point. Um, the degree to which that happens obviously depends massively on kind of not just Chinese economic power, but I think Chinese soft power, Chinese cultural power. Yeah. And I think a lot of what's helped the spread of English is the cultural spread that's gone with it. So, you know, you, you go to like, tiny little towns in rural Indonesia or, or, or Pakistan or whatever and you meet young kids who are listening to Tupac or you know they're, they're, they're listening to to I don't know American hip-hop or they're watching American movies or whatever and until until Chinese has that kind of cultural spread and impact I think it's going to limit the degree to which people learn it for any other reason apart from kind of purely financial oriented kind of goals I think so mm -hmm. I, I would say you know we, we've still got a few years left yet of English um, I, I can't see it going anywhere soon on a global scale and what do you think about China's influence like you mentioned in Indonesia Malaysia Vietnam you know a lot of these yeah. areas they have a lot of Chinese influence already they do Even and Africa Australia, well, Africa, because of the massive support that they like yeah. infrastructure building and um, even Australia has a lot of influence from China. So maybe they're like, maybe they've already started this process of, of exporting culture in a, in a palatable way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there obviously are people in all of those countries who are learning Chinese. And there are obviously kind of, I mean, my wife's family are ethnic Chinese Indonesian. Um, but only my wife's brother out of all four kids actually speaks Chinese, which he taught himself as an adult um, wow. in order to kind of do business with China. Um, 
I guess also a lot of those business transactions are still done through English, actually. So, you know, Malaysians doing business with Chinese, also doing business with Australians, the, the, the lingua franca will still generally be English. Um, you know, you may get a slightly better price if you speak better Mandarin or whatever. Um, the degree to which there's a kind of cultural export, I'm still not sure. Um, I, you know, I, I think actually, I mean, when you're in Asia, and I go to Asia sort of every year to see the in-laws and everything, Korean pop culture is much more, much more significant um, and much more kind of hip to a lot of young Asian kids. And even within China, you know, Korean pop culture, it kind of works on a different level and appeals to people in a different way to what the Chinese are coming out with themselves. And, you know, I think that says something about the societies that those, those, those are producing those kind of products. And it, it's hard to imagine something like Squid Game or, or, I don't know, Parasite coming out of China at the moment, because I just don't think there's that space for that kind of level of critique and, and social commentary, you know? True. Do you think we could argue that TikTok is a cultural mm. expert? Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. Alibaba. Yeah, I mean, TikTok's an interesting one. And, and I think I, I'm very... I'm, I'm very glad my kids aren't on TikTok and I'm very, I, I tend to have a more dystopian view of what the function of TikTok is, because I think having an understanding of how Russia's operated over the last 20 years, my gut feeling is that TikTok is more than just a clever social media marketing tool. I think that long term, it's something that's been designed as an influencing mechanism and that at some point, if and when any broader conflict between, let's say, the West and China starts to develop, the fact that there are billions of TikTok users will be a very useful kind of channel or, or, or medium through which the Chinese state can get messages out to people. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm sure that's something that started to occur to lots of people in the West as well, because I know that government officials are now being encouraged not to have TikTok accounts. And there are fears about the kind of backdoor apparatus on the TikTok apps that are soaking up other bits of information from people's phones and stuff. So, you know, uh, which isn't to say that I think the spread of Western technology is, is always neutral either. It's right. just, I think <laughs> you, you have to be slightly skeptical about where those things go in the long run. Yeah, I think I think they're skeptical skeptical about it because we've done many of the, <laughs> you know, so it's like, oh, they're trying to do what we did. No, we don't want that. Mm. Uh, yeah, I was at someone's house a month or so ago who works in the government here and they specifically said like you can't connect to my wi-fi if you have tiktok on your phone and you should yeah. delete it before you come to my house wow and wow wow have kids and their kids are always like oh why can't i be on tiktok and my friends are on tiktok and wow uh, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that doesn't surprise me i guess but it's it's interesting to hear yeah so um what do you think the role of education is in times of war does it does it change 
Wow. It's a very difficult question because, I mean, in a sense, I think the role of education is sort of the same whether you're in a time of war or not, I think, because the role of education is partly to do with helping you think and helping you digest the world around you and make sense of the world around you and to inculcate in people civilized values and humane values and to understand the way in which people might be encouraged to to, to kind of do things that you might not expect people to do because of the way they've been manipulated through through language through ideology through history through through systems and processes and so on and you know in a sense i think that's kind of the 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 role of of all educators whatever you're teaching you know it, it may sound weird to say that like to think if you're teaching a geography class or you know a biology class or something that you're also involved in those things but i, I don't think really any of those subjects are separate and I mean like when I look at my daughter who's 14 now I look at the way she learns geography at school in London I mean they talk about the disparity of wealth between the global north and the global south um, they talk about countries exporting things that then have value added to them in the global north who then profit from the raw materials of the global south and you know all of the way they understand those subjects is through a discussion of of ethics and morals and and end products and results and so on and i think that's that that's as it should be you know and i think when you're teaching history or when you're teaching literature or when you're teaching even mathematics you know maths isn't like a neutral thing that exists in a vacuum maths feeds into algorithms algorithms feed into a whole load of stuff to do with the way in which we experience the world in which reality is constructed for us so i think in a sense on one level education always has that responsibility to encourage people to be aware of all these kinds of things i think in a time of war there's maybe a clearer or more urgent I don't know, impetus upon us as educators to be clear about where we stand and to be clear about what we think. And to, if we have platforms and if we have a, a space within which we can talk about things, to, 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 to share those values and to, to share those kinds of beliefs and, and to, to kind of bring some of those things to the forefront. And also just to kind of help people make sense of things because you know, I mean, my kids are aware of the fact that, you know, for example, on Russian TV, on a daily basis, they threaten to nuke England, you know, and so my kids are sort of like asking questions like, you know, is it possible that you think we could be nuked? And as an educator, you have a kind of responsibility to to think about how you're going to deal with those kinds of questions if they're coming in from students. And, you know, People, people don't exist in vacuums or exist in little bubbles. People are aware of what's happening in the world around them. And I think particularly if you're an English language educator, you, you have a kind of responsibility to, 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 to kind of be open to these things and to discuss these things and to 
I don't know. For me personally, have a clear moral stance on on where the line is for you. That's that's a great point. Where the line is, because my next question was, you know, there's a lot of discussion, especially about hot topics, and yeah. it's it's always great to have a fruitful discussion and and a genuine discussion. But a lot of times online, people get into ingenuine discussions and they they're just trying to push a point and it's not really a discussion and and so i had a question for you mm. on which subjects can there be no equivocation mass murder um bottom line for me is 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 th th things that involve inflicting extreme violence and, and death and suffering on other people um i think you know you, you can disagree about lots of things. You, you can disagree about, um, you know, which toilets trans people should be allowed to use, okay? I mean, I'm sick of the whole debate. I'm sick of the fact it's become such a huge thing, but I'm, I can have a discussion about it. And I'm, we may disagree, and that's fine. I'm okay with that. You can disagree about pedagogy. You can disagree about approaches to language teaching. We can disagree about abortion, I guess, and, you know, whether or not you think abortion is murder or not. And, you know, I, I'm met people and I know people who I have different opinions about that from, and that's kind of fine. I think where it becomes a red line for me is when someone is saying or believing something that is essentially part of I don't know if you know this idea of stochastic violence or stochastic terrorism, which is the idea of using language in a way which increases the likelihood of violence being inflicted upon people. So, you know, when you've got people who are constantly kind of demonizing trans people or calling Ukrainians Nazis or I don't know, you know, demonizing gay people using extreme violent language that all plays into a culture within which people feel it's okay to commit violence against those people that that language is directed towards and I guess so for me as a teacher as a human being my red line is when people are using language or expressing beliefs that I think feeds into a culture that I can see the end product of and the end product is violence or murder mm -hmm. you know and I think that's where you have to just say this is where you know you can still talk about that but in the end for me that I, I have a kind of line like I, I won't teach people who support certain kinds of things and I mean I've, I've been in rooms with students where I've had to teach people who, who have expressed really unpleasant kind of views during the time I've been teaching them and I've had no choice. Now I'm self-employed. Well, I, I get to choose who, who I yeah. teach and who I don't. And, you know, I, I get to choose who I engage with online and who I don't engage with online, um, which is a luxury for me, I understand. Um, but I think every, every teacher, and I mean, I've, I've still got people I know who are working in the Russian state system. Mm -hmm. And they're very, very aware of the fact that the state system's being used to kind of radicalize a young generation for acceptance of future genocide, basically. And 
they're partly in a position where they don't see themselves as having other options, but they're also in a position where they're trying, you know, hoping against hope that in some way they can subvert that system from within and, and represent better values for those kids in some capacity. Um, so I think, you know, everyone negotiates those lines in whatever way they, they're able to. But I think as a teacher, you have to be, you, you have to have a sense of where your lines are and you have to have a sense of how you're going to navigate and negotiate those transgressions. Absolutely. And what do you think, you know, coming back to the current situation, Russia and Ukraine, uh, what role do you think Russians abroad play in the in this situation? Because I, I think I'm clear on your position about Russians mm. in Russia, mm. but like Russians who were living outside of Russia before this happened or sometime before the invasion. So uh, I yeah, think yeah. not not enough of a role is the answer so far to that question. Um, I think there obviously are Russians outside of Russia who left 10 years ago, five years ago, one year ago, six months ago, um, who have a very clear understanding of what's happening and who are quite active and quite involved in things. Um, I think there's another level of Russians living abroad who would see themselves as anti-war, but don't see anti-war as meaning pro-Ukrainian. And they kind of wish the whole thing would go away and they they try not to think about it and they post pictures of themselves on social media on the beach in Goa or living their new life in Bali or Dubai or whatever. And, you know, that's lovely. They've got a lovely new life abroad. And there's still a kind of head in the sand attitude going on with those people and they're very reluctant to speak out and speak up about things and to take part in protests and demos and all that kind of thing. Um, and then beyond that, you've got another level of person who I think e either in a more silent kind of way or sometimes more directly actively supports what's happening. And I mean, I've had Ukrainian friends here in London who have been confronted by Russians who've heard them speaking Ukrainian on the tube. They've come up to them and said, you know, when's your bloody country going to stop this war? We've had to leave Russia because of you and your bloody country fighting this war, you know, and yeah, just uh, sick, sick, sick. I, I saw a guy on the tube wearing a Z t-shirt, you know, a Russian guy on the tube in London wearing a Z t-shirt. Um, so you get these guys as well. So I, I don't think there's one answer to that question, but I think my general feeling would be that they don't play enough of an actively oppositional role as they could. And, you know, you compare and contrast that to, say, like Georgians abroad or, or Belarusians abroad, who are much more active and much more vocal and much more involved generally. Um, but I think there's just been this massive depoliticization of Russians over 20, well, over 100 years, essentially, but particularly over the last 20 years. And so the ones who are out often, not always, but often just just 
try not to think about what's going on and just try trying to live their best lives um yeah. without without having to mentally engage with all of the stuff that you should be engaging with as a sentient human being can we blame them for living trying to live their best life and and <sighs> you know like i mean well yeah you can of course you can because because other people are dying as a result of that so i mean i I had a very interesting moment with one of my students this week where she was saying that she now understands that the guilt of her generation of russians she's still inside russia this student is that because they were too scared to get arrested and maybe get killed and get hurt by the police ukrainians are paying for their lives with their lives because of the fear of that her generation of russians to confront the system and so i think on that level yeah you can because you know am am i or are you responsible for the deaths in iraq um directly no indirectly yes because even though i went on the demos against iraq uh, i didn't vote for the government that that went to war in iraq after the iraq war i didn't do enough to persuade other people to do the same and to demonstrate and to protest and and i didn't do enough to 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 maybe you know I, i could have done more looking back on it to my dad for example supported the invasion of iraq and I could have done more to persuade him and to persuade his generation of people that it was a stupid idea. Um, you know, I, I could have done more. Same with Brexit. It's like I didn't vote for Brexit. I think it's a stupid idea. Did I do enough to stop it happening? Probably not. And so I think as a citizen of any country, you, you have a kind of responsibility to participate in the culture of that country and when things go terribly wrong as they do everywhere you know you you kind of have a responsibility to to look at yourself and think about how you could have done more um and i think it's easy to kind of say oh there's nothing they can do because it's really dangerous for them to protest well ukrainians are fighting their government for them now and dying as a result of it and and so I think it is a sort of unprecedented situation in that respect where, you know, England has problems with Scotland. Scotland may choose to become independent at some point. Um, I'm 99.99% sure we won't send the tanks in and start bombing Glasgow, you know. And if we did, I would like to think I'd be out on the streets doing whatever I could to to, to stop that because it's it's horrific. Now, for the people who live abroad and they have family back in Russia, maybe one of the reasons they haven't spoken out so much is that they have family members who support and they and they're not ready to break family ties over something that they don't experience directly or their family isn't experiencing directly. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, it kind of, you know, when the when the war started, because I have I lived in Russia for eight years, I've got my wife is russian i didn't know chris Ah. at home every day my wife and daughter speak russian so like i hear russian every day and my daughter speaks both so that's great and like so that i like i want to keep the the good aspects of the culture and the language and i feel like the period of time when i was there was like this golden era of a lot of westernization and 
uh, I got to, you know, I had a, such a great experience when I was there, but I did see those underlying things mm. were leading up and leading up. And, you know, uh, when it all started, it brought me back to this one memory. Um, we had this big party in Yekaterinburg, Russia, and uh, the IT guy from the US consulate came with us. And it was like, in the middle of the night, everyone had been, you know, partying all night. And someone looks at their phone and reads the news. And they say, Krim Nash. Crimea is ours. Yeah, 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 everyone yeah. starts chanting, Crimea yeah. is ours. And me and the US consulate guy are just looking at each other like, oh my God, where am yeah. I? Yeah. Uh, and it just brought me back to that moment in time. And, you know, I think my wife and I were like frozen, like just shocked by the whole situation even happening, the war starting, the invasion. It must have been two months that we were kind of like, yeah. Like it just took over your brain. Like yeah. what, yeah, what yeah, is yeah. happening? And, uh, and so at that moment, I, I started to realize that, you know, while living in Russia in order to become proficient in Russian, I needed to take on some part of the Russian identity. I needed to have a piece of Russian inside of me. Mm. And so when the war started, that thing started to die. Mm. And it was like, mm. what really is Russian to me now? Mm. And then I saw how my wife and other Russian friends were reacting. And it was like this identity crisis for yeah, so many to say, what does it really mean to be Russian? Mm. Just because I call myself Russian, does that mean that I am responsible for this thing that's happening? Or that, does that mean that I'm connected to this thing just because I call myself this word? you know and I, so yeah i'm sure you like you've you have so many people who I've, i'm sure I, mean, I, I feel where you're coming from massively uh, and i mean i first went to russia in 1999 and i've traveled the length and breadth of the country i've been from kaliningrad to vladivostok i've been way up to the arctic circle um i've probably been there 40 or 50 times and i thought i understood the country um but once the full-scale invasion happened i kind of it's similar thing thing to you really where i realized i'd missed lots of things about the country i mean i think of it in a way like in england when the brexit vote happened i had loads of middle class friends who lived nice comfortable lives in london who had no idea why people would vote for brexit Whereas for me, it's like I know those small towns that are disenfranchised and I know the people who live in those places because I kind of spent my teenage years there. And so it wasn't a huge shock to me, although it was still a shock. I know for lots of my Russian friends, it was also a huge shock. I mean, one of my friends said, I always kind of knew there were two Russias. I never believed there'd be a civil war between them. And I think that whole process of re-evaluating what it means and what you take from that is, is 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 going to go on for years and i mean i know from a lot of my ukrainian friends you know most of whom were russian speakers a lot of them now just won't speak russian at all um because they have seen putin claim that somehow he owns them or that they belong to russia because they're russian speakers and you've still got this strong idea in russia this kind of imperial idea of Wherever there is Russian, it is Russia. Yeah, I mean, we talk about, you, you hear people talk about ethnic Russians. And 
it's such a bizarre idea because you'd never go to Ireland and call them ethnic English or go to Jamaica and call people ethnic English or Pakistan and say, oh, well, you ethnic English people. I mean, it, it's such a, a bizarre imperial construct, this idea that because people in Moldova or Estonia or, or you know, Ukraine speak Russian, that they somehow belong to Russia. And so I think because what you're going to see now in the Baltic states, in Kazakhstan, in Ukraine, is this massive kind of decolonization of the mind at hyperspeed that's happening because of the war. Russia itself, within Russia, is also, and Russians themselves, are also going to be engaging in that kind of decolonization of the mind. And I mean, as an English person, I feel it and see it very strongly because it's what we're going through. And so we're having to reassess our own colonial past. We're having to ask ourselves, why have we still got statues of slave traders in squares in English towns? Um, why do we have colleges in our prestigious universities named after slave traders and slave owners? You know, same things happening in the States. And there's obviously a backlash against that as well. Um, but I think that kind of decolonization process has already started in a big way here in the UK and the States, obviously. You know, I mean, I see your picture of Ali on the wall behind you. And in a world where people like Ali have existed, those conversations have been forced into the open. And, you know, white Americans have been forced to kind of recognize their own history of brutality and all of those kind of things and I think what what needs to happen is I, I think I mean one of the things I find most problematic with Russians abroad is people moaning about cancel culture and kind of going oh well Russians being cancelled it's like listen in the occupied territories in Ukraine people are being thrown in prison and tortured simply for having phone messages in Ukrainian okay um, Ukrainians being completely banned, you, you can't speak Ukrainian, you can't, they're bringing in teachers from mainland Russia, and you're worried because this year there's no Tchaikovsky at the Royal Opera House, please, you know, <laughs> get some sense of perspective. And so I think there's obviously a lot of stuff within Russian culture that exists in opposition to all of that. And I mean, you know, for me, as, as a kind of child of the post-punk years in England, when I first saw things like Pussy Riot, you know, I completely kind of understood where that was coming from, because it was like, ah, <laughs> it's, it's your punk 30 years late. Um, <laughs> and there's loads of stuff like that that still exists within Russia, and that there's loads of kind of countercultural identities and countercultural spaces. But I think... It will, it will be hard for a lot of Russians, particularly ones who haven't lived in those countercultural spaces and are just your, your normal workaday average Russian person to, to think about what that identity means to them going forwards. It's, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. And I think in the end, it has to be the same as it is for us as white Western you know, English or American people where you, you have to listen a lot more to the voices of people who've traditionally been excluded and depressed and voices from the colonies you have to listen to. 
voices of black Americans, you've got to listen to voices of Latino Americans, you've got to listen to women more, you've got to listen to LGBT people more, you know, and just just sometimes sit and soak all that information up and kind of keep your mouth shut and think a bit more. And I think for Russians, it's going to have to be a long, hard process of, you know, listen to Ukrainians, listen to Kazakhs, listen to Estonians, um, listen to what they're telling you about what their experience of, of, of your, your, your culture has been. I mean, you know, one of my, one of my Ukrainian friends is a musician in Kiev. And he lived in Moscow for seven years. He played in orchestras in Moscow. He had a lot of Russian friends. He said the same thing. When Crimea was annexed, he started getting messages from composers in Russia kind of going, you know, Krimnash. And he was like, how can you support this? Like, this is an illegal annexation of, 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 of international territory. And then when the full scale invasion happened, he started getting messages from people he'd played in orchestras with. And he said for him now, as someone who grew up cherishing and loving Russian culture and Russian music, for him, Russian music is the sound of drones. You know, it's the sound of drones flying over his apartment, dropping bombs. And he said that's all he can feel about it at the moment. And that's someone who grew up as, as a very Russophile person in a post-Soviet kind of world where Russian was still part of his identity. Yeah. And that's been completely, you know, that hasn't been something he's voluntarily given up. That's been a kind of a giving up that's been imposed on him by the aggression of the Russian state. And so I think for a lot of Russians, it's just going to have to be acknowledging that that's what's happened and trying to forge a new way forward. You know, and it, it won't be easy and it'll take time. Definitely. Do you think that Russian diasporas abroad have trouble integrating into local populations and that's why they always stand out and say like you know this is this is the russian thing and you're trying to cancel russia by saying that we can't do it our way and i think there's a massive generational thing involved so i mean i was in estonia recently and i've been in all the baltic states and you know they've all got fairly sizable russian-speaking populations especially latvia yeah latvia especially yeah and it's a generational thing. I think you basically have to wait for that Soviet generation to die out. And the younger generation, you're going to see a completely different set of identities going on. I mean, even the Ukrainian friends I've got who are still speaking Russian and, and aren't giving up on Russian, you know, they're very, very, very clear in their minds that they're not Russian. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is not even a remote question of that identity. They're, they're Russian speaking Ukrainians and Europeans. And, yeah. you know, that they see their future very much as, as Ukrainian Europeans. Um, and they see Ukraine still as being a country within which the two languages problematically but will continue to kind of exist in, in in different ways i think as that moves forward russian will become much less useful and influential yeah I, I do think there is there is an integration thing in the way that there is with english people living abroad in spain or you know wherever with every I, mean, I was in was in moldova recently and i was chatting to them about how it works with the, the language there and they were saying, well, the problem is, officially, 
we're, we're all bilingual, right? We speak Romanian and we speak Russian. But the problem is the Russians just speak Russian and we all speak Romanian and Russian. So sometimes we're at a party and there's 15 people who are bilingual and one Russian speaker. And so we all have to switch to Russian and we all get sick of it because it's like you've lived here all your life. You've been to school here. How the hell can you still not speak Romanian? And there is that frustration, I think, in the Baltics, you know, particularly in certain bits of Ukraine. And I think increasingly that will happen more generally across Ukraine, um, in, in Moldova, you know, and I think increasingly in Kazakhstan. I was reading the other day about a bar fight between ethnic Russians who grew up in Kazakhstan and incomers and the, the ethnic Russians in Kazakhstan were speaking Kazakh. Mm -hmm. And the other Russians were like complaining, saying, bloody hell, we come here and, you know, we, we, we speak Russian to them and we know they understand us, but they won't answer us in Russian. They'll answer in Kazakh. And the guys who grew up there are like, mate, <laughs> you know, like get with the program. And I think that that's, that's obviously a problem. There's all kinds of viral videos. There's a video of a Russian vlogger in Tbilisi as well, trying to get into a nightclub and she's talking Russian to the doorman and he's answering her in Georgian and then she says in English I don't understand you and he says oh we can speak English then and she's like yes but you understand Russian and he's like the language I choose to respond to you in is my choice not yours <laughs> you know and the whole video went viral and I think there is an issue with that but that's a kind of colonial mentality again which is you speak my language because I'm the colonial master and that comes with a kind of power dynamic and uh, an, an arrogance and a sort of unexamined sense of entitlement and privilege that, you know, you know as an American or as a Brit, you understand. Right. <laughs> you know, because it's like, let's not pretend we're not guilty of this on occasion as well. Oh, absolutely. You know? like, how many times in the eight years in Russia did someone from the States or from the UK come over? And I remember one person's mom came to visit them while they were working there. And they went somewhere and someone was cutting in line. And she said, this would not be tolerated in America. And she said that it's in Russia, people are looking at her like, what are you talking about? Yeah, you're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So um, do you think that there is any level of Russophobia in the UK right now? Certainly not in the sense that the Russian government uses the term to mean, I mean, Russians aren't being attacked, Russian restaurants aren't being burnt down. I mean, I, I know what happened to the German businesses that used to be here at the onset of the First World War. You know, I mean, they were they were ripped to pieces, basically. They were they were destroyed and Germans were hounded out of their shops and businesses and nothing like that's happening here. Um, I think there's a general, quite rational feeling of fear and disgust directed towards the Russian government. And, you know, I mean, one of my Ukrainian friends was saying the other day, yeah, I'm not Russophobic. I have good reason to fear Russia. You know, it's <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's, it's an entirely logical kind of experience-based fear that I'm experiencing. It's not an irrational fear, like a fear of spiders or something, or a fear of the dark. Um, I think there's quite a strong feeling of the regime really needing to be to be defeated and a feeling of 
the fact that the, the war will not stop until the till there's a kind of massive military defeat and the regime is, is is you know forced to pull out of Ukraine. I think there's also an awareness here of the way in which Russia has interfered in the UK. I mean, you know, we were aware of kind of Russian interference in Brexit. Obviously, it wasn't the only thing that swayed Brexit the same way as it wasn't the only thing that put Trump in power in the States. But there was obviously degrees of interference that were quite malign. And I, I think to, I mean, no, there's, there's loads of Russian people still living here. We're still giving visas to Russians. I mean, you know, London is still far too welcoming of, of dubious Russian money, the same as it's welcoming of dubious oligarchs' money and sheikhs' money from around the world. And, you know, we're still kind of one of the money laundering capitals of the world in a way that I don't think is, is helpful for us as a city long term. Um, but no, I, I certainly don't get that sense of explicit anger towards or, or fear of individual Russians at all, um, mm -hmm. at all, you know, and, directed you know, towards the government and the military. Uh -huh. That's that's where you direct. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, in London, particularly, that there's a long memory of the Blitz and of being bombed and of fighting Nazis during the Second World War and a real feeling of kind of kinship with people who are living through something similar, whether that's in Kharkiv or, or you know, Mariupol or Kiev or wherever. Um, and, I, and I think as a result of that, there's a huge amount of sympathy for Ukraine and for Ukrainians and a sort of sense of them experiencing something very similar to what we experienced a generation or two ago. Um, so I think there's definitely that. But no, I mean, when when the Russian government talks about Russophobia, this this idea that somehow Russians are being attacked on the streets and lynched, I mean, it's it's fantasy. Right. It's fantasy. Right. Yeah. It's not um, happening anywhere in Europe. You know, you online, you've taken such a strong stance. I've followed you for a while and seen the transition from before and <laughs> until now. And it's, you know, you've been consistent and, you know, and I'm not sure if other people are posting for you on different platforms like Contacte, VK. I still post there myself. Okay. Yeah. So, so my question is, are you afraid of retribution for taking such a strong stance? I, I'm sure people have, have, have said that they have, I oh, mean, yeah. I know people have yeah, written comments there. Oh God, I mean, I've, I've had things like for, from English language teachers, like I hope Azov kill you and, 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 and mutilate your children. You know, I've had these kind of comments. I've had comments from people saying, if you keep talking about Russia, there will be consequences. We can get you fucked up. If you ever come back to Russia, there will be consequences for you and so on. Um, I, I look at a lot of this as being in keeping with a certain kind of discourse that's quite common in Russia, which is, you know, it, it's the opposite of the Teddy Roosevelt thing of carry a big stick and speak softly. It's kind of have a tiny little useless stick, but talk very loudly. And I'm I'm not the kind of person that responds well to bullying or, or bullies. And I I was kind of brought up to, you know, face those people down and and to 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 not back down in those circumstances. I, I don't 
feel directly that there will be retribution, but I would be very, very wary of going to Russia anytime in the immediate future. Um, I've kind of made my peace with the fact that I probably won't go back there again in my lifetime, which kind of, you know, it, it kind of saddens me to say that, although I also recognise from the messages I get and from the, the, the comments I see that there's a lot of kind of real nasty sickness going on in the in the general population there and a lot of unprocessed un un unanalyzed rage and anger and fear and denial and and externalization of stuff directed towards people like me for talking about things um not directly threatened no i mean i don't feel like i'm going to open the door and there's going to be a guy with a poisoned umbrella tip or something um but i mean it's obviously affected the business um and you know i mean i've lost something like a thousand followers on instagram um i've lost something like three and a half thousand followers on vk <laughs> um and and so you you do I'm happy to lose those people. You know, it's not something that keeps me awake at night. Um, where, where possible, I try to engage with people still. Um, sometimes it's fruitful. Generally, it's not. But I also I know from talking to Russians that, you know, sometimes they've they've had staff room conversations with teachers who still use my books and kind of go, you know, they're great books, but it's such a shame about about what a monster he's become. And then six months later, some of those people will say, actually, he might have been right. And mm -hmm. so I think there is an advantage to being a consistent voice about things, which is that people can dip in and out of those opinions or, 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 or what I'm putting forward at their own speed in their own time. And different people will come to different conclusions and realizations about what I'm talking about in their own speed and for a lot of people it'll be slow because the you know i've seen the levels of denial shift over the year so i've seen it shift from butcher never happened it was all invented in hollywood film studios to make russia look bad to now what you're seeing is yes okay this is all happening but you made us do it mm. and it's like well that's a slightly less insane level of denial you know <laughs> so <laughs> I'm kind of happy to see there's at least some forward momentum in what it is you're denying the reality of as we go forward. Um, so no, not directly threatened, but I've, I've definitely, I mean, I still every week I get messages which are unpleasant, shall we say, um, and varying degrees of threats and people making horrible comments. But, you know, there you go. It doesn't keep you awake at night. I, th I think it happens to anyone who takes a strong stance on yeah. anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and a lot, you know, a lot of it is just you brought up the you brought up the business, and I think actually this is a good strategy to take a strong stance and to clearly define who your audience is. Yeah, and you lost the people who weren't in the audience. You, you just cleaned out your list. Yeah you know kind of like you have to clean out your friend list every now and then and you're like yeah. yeah i've known bill a long time but i don't want to read any more comments about how covid is part of a new world order bio programming mechanism goodbye bill 
<laughs> it was fun while it lasted. And, you know, we all kind of do that, I guess, every now and then, yeah. The last question, it's actually two questions. Okay. Uh, so these are great questions, by the way, and it's really lovely to talk about things I haven't been asked to talk about before. So thank you. Oh, really? I, I thought yeah, 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 yeah. I thought you were no, really no, no, this is all kind of new new terrain for me talking about this stuff. So thank you. It's really exciting. Oh, cool. Well, I wanted to switch up gears here at the end and okay. go back to the publishing bit, the part, you know, that part of your career. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of people who think that it's really difficult to be published by someone like Oxford, Cambridge, other big publication companies. And what are some of the criteria that someone should meet in order to qualify for being published? What do you think? And then the follow-up mm. to that is, is the juice worth the squeeze? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So the criteria you have to meet, I mean, one of the problems I think is that books are written under such extreme time pressure and financial pressure increasingly. Um, because of the, the demands of, you know, getting the money in the first place to invest in the product in the hope that it's going to recoup you the investment that you've put into it, and then some, that one of the main demands you have to be able to live up to or achieve is the ability to deliver semi-finished material under very tight time constraints. And because of that, as a younger person trying to break into that, it's very difficult because you learn that through time and through experience. And it's almost like the more you write and the deeper your understanding of how material writing works, the more able you are to deliver it quickly. I mean, part of that then becomes a kind of self-defeating circle because it's like, if you write a book in six months, the next time they say, we'd like you to write another book, this time in five. <laughs> God, you know, if I write one more, does that mean I have to write it in four months after that? Um, I think you probably, uh, some of it's just to do with chance and opportunity and hustle. Um, you've got to get yourself out there. You've probably got to be noticed in some way or, you know, if you're looking to get into publishing, you probably need to be already talking on the conference circuit or you need to have a website that people are drawn to or you need to be producing online content in some shape or form that gets you noticed already. Um, you need a good grasp of language. Uh, you, you, you probably need a lot of free time or a lot of the ability to carve out time from your day somewhere. Um, you probably need some hunger. Um, and beyond that, I guess you also need, you know, you, you need manners. Um, <laughs> you, you, you need to be able to deal with people critiquing your work. You need to be able to deal with editors kind of going, that spreads rubbish, do it again. Um, and you need to kind of be able to deal with the, the, the pain of, of rejection and kickbacks and, and people kind of taking a knife to, to what you've spent three days of your life crafting um and you know then throwing it in the bin and and just having to take that on the chin and write it again better in a day um in terms of is the juice worth the squeeze i think that very much depends i would say it's much harder to make a living as 
an English language teaching course book writer or materials writer than it was. Uh, I think I'm very lucky in that I'm possibly the last generation who rode the wave where royalties still exist, where you've still got historical contracts which are honoured. Um, I think increasingly writers are seen as being sort of disposable, we're just content creators, um, you can get anyone to do what you want on a flat fee, you can get a kid to churn out a workbook for a thousand dollars or whatever. Um, almost certainly we're going to start seeing the, the advent of like chat GPT driven published material in some capacity, which is going to drive costs down again. Um, I mean, if, if someone was looking to, to, to make a decent living, I'm not sure I would recommend them now to come into course book writing as a viable game. Mm. I suspect if you're smart and young and tech savvy, there's probably more money for you to, to, to there's more money to be made in some kind of online setup, even though that's obviously also a very crowded, you know, sort of world out there. But there are people out there doing well off being online content creators and having more kind of control over their own output and their own kind of destiny. That's so, true. I mean, you know, it's been worth it for us, but I think we, we came into it 25 years ago and, you know, we literally caught the last wave. Um, and the, the generation that came before us are the generation that ended up making proper real money and, you know, buying big retirement houses and all that kind of thing. But um, hey-ho, you know, still here and still enjoying it. So, And do you self-publish now? Start Starting to get into doing that. So my plan for the next kind of six months is I'm doing a course with Dorothy Zemak on self-publishing. Um, she published, she, she's got this little publishing house called Ways Goose, and she did this little thing for us, Grammar Nonsense. And I saw her do that and I sort of thought, I wanted to learn how you do that. So I'm going to be doing this course this summer and looking to do kind of e-versions and print on demand versions and just start, you know, I don't have any expectation of that making much money if it makes four figures a year, kind of, you know, I'm, I'm happy to begin with on that. But I think that's one of the ways to go in the future is to kind of get into doing your own publishing stuff. And I mean, for me now, I, I want to learn more about how to grow Instagram. I mean, I know how not to grow Instagram, which is write about the war twice a week. Um, I want to, you know, kind of grow the YouTube channel a bit more and, and be able to do a bit more with that kind of stuff. And I'm sort of aware of my own, I don't know, generational limitations in that respect where there's things that I don't know how to do that I suspect other people are probably doing and I'd like to find out what they are um because yeah. you know I know that we can produce quality content for these things it's just getting it out there and spreading it a bit more um and hopefully you know turning to that as an extra revenue stream going forward awesome yeah you thank you so much for taking Chris, the time uh, thank you and um really lovely to talk to you and um all the best to you and your wife and um all right bye-bye
Thank you for tuning in to English World with Chris Americos. Now it's your turn. Don't just listen to English, speak English with us every day. Join our English Everyday Speaking Program today. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye.